City in the year 2022. Nothing runs anymore. Nothing works. But the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need. This is the police. What they need most is Soylent Green. The supply of Soylent Green has been exhausted. Detective Sergeant Thorne. He has a two-year backlog of unsolved murders. Now he's on a case that must be solved. Saul Roth, Thorne's private library. Hey, Saul. A living book in a world without books. Have some pencils. Courtesy of your next assignment. William R. Simonson. Simonson. He was the first to learn the secret of Soil and Green. They told me to, uh, to say that they were sorry but that you had become unreliable. <laughs> Saul Roth was the next to know. How did we come to this? And he chose to die, rather than reveal the secret of Soylent Green. Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson, Chuck Connors, Lee Taylor Young, Brock Peters, Paula Kelly, and Joseph Cotton fight for survival and try to solve the most bizarre riddle ever to face mankind. The search for the secret of Soylent Green. You will find out why Soylent Green means life. You will find out why Soylent Green means death. We've got to stop him! What is the secret of Soylent Green? Please! Welcome friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. It's the 15th of April, 2013, which is the third April of the month. And, uh, sorry, the third Monday of the month. <laughs> and as that would indicate, of course, this is another edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. And this month, as promised last month, we're going to be reviewing the movie Soylent Green, the 1973 American sci-fi flick starring Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson in his last fi uh, film performance, his 101st film performance. Performance. And for those of you who have not yet seen the movie, I would, well, not only strongly suggest, I would almost demand that you watch it before listening to our conversation, because there definitely will be spoilers. And although the, uh, the trailer for the film uh, promises uh, to answer the question, what is the secret of Soylent Green? I can tell you right now, for those of you who have watched the movie, it's people. So there you go. I've just spoiled the movie for you if you haven't watched it yet, and the whole movie will be completely ruined. So once again, please watch the movie. <laughs> and on that note, uh, we are going to be discussing not only this movie, but also the book that the movie is based on called Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison, which won the Nebula Award. I'm sorry, the movie won the Nebula Award for Best Science Fiction Present, uh, Best Dramatic Presentation, and the Saturn, Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film in 1973. So so there's a big pedigree to this movie production and the book that it was based upon. And to help us discuss all of this today, we are joined by none, none other than the resident uh, uh, feature film slash uh, book expert on Soylent Green specifically, our good old friend, James Evan Pilato, MediaMonarchy.com. James, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Well, we've we've uh, mentioned this film enough in in our various works together that I think it's high time we actually discuss it in earnest. And who better to discuss it with than than my good friend James? So, um, I, well, I, let's. I don't know where to even begin st- uh, a conversation like this, but. Let's start with talking about the novel that this book was based on. This is, as I say, a 1966 novel called Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison, which uh, you have just read and which I have not read. So I am interested to find out about the differences and similarities between the book and the movie. But why don't you tell us a little bit just your overview of what the book's about and, uh, and the basic synopsis? Well, I think this, James, ideally is maybe in a way a good role reversal for you and I, and and maybe I'm projecting onto you or one or the other, that I feel like me doing the book and you doing the movie is a nice role reversal and, and makes me have to put my nose to the grindstone a little bit more. You know, I think the the movie itself entered into my consciousness a, a few years ago, and I think I started to use it and reference it so often on the Media Monarchy podcasts that you and I would kind of joke about, you know, that I would become synonymous with Soylent Green, that that was my my, my end-all, be-all analogy for things, because it did seem so pertinent to everything. So I got a hold of a, a reprint of the book, super cheap. You know, you look at the cover and even see that it was 95 cents, as if you could get anything, again, for 95 cents, which speaks to the theme of the book, Make Room, Make Room. What floored me, James, and I think what solidified you and I doing this episode together was when I told you who wrote the introduction to the book. Do you want me to go ahead and let that cat out of the bag right Let's here? Let's do it, absolutely. When I looked at the introduction, which, which again, you know, in classic sci-fi way, the, this was serialized in a sci-fi journal called Impulse or Magazine in three parts. And then they put it together in this book. So then in the book, at some point, the paperback edition got a special introduction. And it's really short, and we can link up in the show notes. People can read the whole thing for themselves. But I'll just read you the first paragraph, and it says – One of the most ominous trends in a world replete with ominous trends is the accelerating growth of urban populations. In part, this is directly due to the population explosion. People are being born at a faster rate than they are dying. But population growth also contributes indirectly. For instance, as the total world population skyrockets, more and more pressures develops to mechanize farming and farm workers displaced by tractors and combines go to seek their fortunes in the city. And of course, many people just prefer to live in the city. The results of the population explosion, and it goes on a few more paragraphs, and it ends by saying, thank you, Harry Harrison, Paul R. Ehrlich, who had not yet published his book, The Population Bomb. I double-checked those dates, James. The Population Bomb would come out a couple of years after Soylent Green. So I would went into the book assuming, oh, Harry Harrison probably got influenced or had heard some of the talk of Paul Ehrlich and some of the zero population growth gang, and we can get into some of that. But as, as far as chronology goes, Harry Harrison had the book Make Room, Make Room out first, and I'll not lie, I, I have the paperback right here, but I also got the audio book, and I've use that to kind of supplement, you know, the time sometimes going to and from work. James, as you listen to this story or read it, 
while you're riding on a bus in a city going into the downtown area. It struck me pretty well. But the book is really different from the film, James. The book and the film are very different. The book is essentially a crime thriller that has our sort of anti-hero detective and his goal, the target, you know, that who he's going after and also just the city itself kind of plays a role. But nowhere in the book are the words Soylent Green ever spoken, James. Interesting. Well, that uh, makes me obviously question what the central plot device is, because that is obviously the central uh, theme of the entire movie. So, um, but, uh, for example, I know that the book is set in 1999 as opposed to 2022 as the movie is. Um, and what are some of the other like major differences that, that you spot? The book basically takes place over the year of 1999, and it in a way, for the first long while in the book, and I thought it was going to really stick to this rigidly, but it didn't, it's almost as though each chapter you're following a different person and a different character in this city. And it is New York City. They say that, 1999, as it goes through that year. And it just plays out really like a crime thriller, like a hard-boiled kind of crime thriller where each chapter sets up the characters and, and again, Soylent Green is nowhere in there. There's nothing about cannibalism in the book whatsoever. Essentially, it's the story of, you know, the overpopulated city in 1999. Our hero, who's played the, with a different name as most of, if not all of the names of James are changed from the book to the film. But the Charlton Heston character is a cop who's investigating a murder. And he's put on the case, even though they're, of course, stretched to the limit and they don't have many officers to investigate things. You can almost get away with murder, they say. He's pushed to follow and investigate this case of murder because it involved one of the cops who are, of course, connected to the gangsters and the mafia who are sort of run them. They think this murder is connected to another Another rival gang trying to move into their city. Oh, they knocked off Big Mike. He's one of our main racketeers. Is that because, you know, the rival gang is moving in? That's why they put our main character on this investigation. When in actuality, it was just a poor kid who, like everyone else, is starving and running around and, and pretty much lying and cheating and stealing to get whatever they can get. It was just a kid who had broken into the apartment to try and steal some food, and he gets surprised by Big Mike and kills him. So it had nothing to do with gangsters and everything. Meanwhile, our hero doesn't know any of the top story of why he's maybe investigating this story, but as he gets kind of deeper into it, he falls in love with the girl who belonged to the now-deceased racketeer, and they move in together and live in luxury and... It's essentially a, a, a crime story that then culminates in the year 2000, the very last page. It's, you know, happy new year, happy new century. They never, never say anything about Y2K. But it says 344 million citizens in these great United States. Since it says United States has biggest year ever, end of century. And it's followed immediately, James, by suggestions for further reading where you can among a bunch of names, the ones that stuck out to me most in the bibliography, Vance Packard, Hidden Persuaders, and The Status Seekers, 
as well as our good friends Thomas Malthus, Julian Huxley, and also Frederick Osborne, three essays on population. And that's when you realize, okay, in the book, eugenics is just kind of the, the plot device in a way for it to just be a, a sort of crime thriller. But in the book, or rather in the film, that's where they add in all of those things and the gimmicks of the cannibalism, the Soylent Green and the corporations. None of that stuff is in the book, James. That That is a fascinating difference, isn't it? I mean, that that's pretty much the basis. That's the absolute bedrock of the film. So to, to have that not even in the book at all is is pretty weird. But um, obviously the key theme there is the overpopulation problem, and that's obviously carried over into the uh, movie as well. So... So definitely some um, some points of uh, co- accord and also discord between the two works there. But um, I, I I note just from the the Wikipedia entry on Make Room Make Room that the, some of the uh, I guess the, the the seeds of what would become Soylent Green are there. I mean, there's something called Soylent, which is which people riot over, etc. But it's actually just soya and lentil in the book, etc. So there are some, I suppose, points of agreement there, but uh, but some of the main things are not there. That's interesting to me because why? Where would they even get the idea to add in things such as oh yeah, and they're eating people to make ends meet? Um, that's I mean that's a pretty major thing to to add into oh. the mix. But it certainly plays well on the screen, doesn't it? And adds to that mystery of Soylent Green that's supposed to keep the viewer on the edge of their seat, I suppose. And then you get into looking at so if Harry Harrison was reading and getting into, you know, Paul Ehrlich and all these guys, I've kind of cruised around and found at the similar time. And and there's actually there's a book called Meals to Come, A History of the Future of Food by Warren Belasco. And he talks about Paul Ehrlich and and he says, doubting that Americans would sacrifice their meat, cars or hot showers for the sake of a more equitable distribution of resources. Paul Ehrlich suggested forced birth control, including child lotteries and, quote, spiking foreign food aid with anti-fertility drugs, end quote. Despite being technically and politically infeasible, Ehrlich's case for proactive population control touched a radicalized audience well aware that a viable contraceptive pill was now available. We're talking, again, you know, 66-ish. A fixture on the campus speaker circuit, Ehrlich founded Zero Population Growth, a major organizer of the first Earth Day in 1970, and he wrote the introduction for the paperback edition of Harry Harrison's 1966 novel Make Room, Make Room, which in turn became the 1973 hit Soylent Green, a nightmare about a vastly overcrowded planet in 2022. The film takes place. Published, publishing 24 articles and three books in the late 60s and early 70s and cited many other times, Ehrlich clearly got around and his alarmist message received respectful treatment in the more conservative media, as in a 1970 Life magazine cover article on zero population growth titled A Thoughtful New Student Cause. So again, James, that's just a paragraph from a book called Meals to Come, A History of the Future of Food, where they talk about Paul Ehrlich getting around the campus circuit. And so that's how a lot of these ideas of overpopulation were really pushed in the 60s and 70s, James, and I know you've done a great amount of work on this in, in your own podcast work, but I found it really interesting that they say it really played in the more conservative media because now that we look 40 years later, and that's, James, what I'm glad I remembered, 
Soylent Green came out 40 years ago this week. Did you know that? Did you plan that? I actually didn't. It's just one of those coincidences. That That is amazing. 40 years ago this week. Well, it's a April, fitting tribute that we're doing. Uh, April 19th, 1973. Wow. Well, so, I mean, that certainly puts it into perspective. But and now, what I was just going to end on is saying that now, 40 years later, you would you. it's more of the, the quote-unquote progressives that would that would push this zero population growth. Well, that is actually an interesting shift, isn't it? And, and I think you would see more, um, more of the tendency to push back against this meme from, from conservative quarters. Um, and I, I wonder why that switch has taken place over the past four decades, but, but it, it to, to me, what's interesting about this is that this is an idea that clearly was being pushed um, from a, a higher level from the very beginning. I mean, after you had sort of the underground movement of, of population control taking place in the 60s, it started to, to be pushed in big budget Hollywood movie productions in the 70s. And um, I think you can see that taking place and taking shape in the movie um, as, as the type of narrative that was being pushed uh, on the masses as a type of predictive programming. And and just to speak to the the power of this type of predictive programming to shape people's perceptions, because, again, I'm sure that 50 years ago, the perception that the world was overcrowded in the way that uh, pretty much everyone on the street that you talk to will say the exa- that exact thing today. Um, 50 years ago, I'm sure that that was not part of the modern consciousness. And, uh, and just as a testament to the way that this type of movie making can have an effect on our our perception of the world like that. Let's just read from the IMDb uh, message boards on Soylent Green, this little gem from a thread entitled, Is It Really So Bad? Modern Thought. And uh, the user Corturia2 writes, Okay, just watched this movie again for the first time in a few years, so I watch it, and yeah, we are getting closer to a reality that could resemble this someday. My point is, if you are living in a world with no resources, animals, limited plant life, and basically you're starving every day and overpopulation, is it really so bad that humans are recycled and eaten to keep the rest of the population going? I understand that in 1973 this notion would be seen as extreme, and maybe today as well, but with rising population growth to st- staggering levels, do do out views change on this in 2010? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that means. Remember, we're not talking about people being bumped off to make soil just the natural dying people or people victims of crimes and processed. I don't want to go down the road of yeah, but eventually they would start death squads or whatever in line with the keeping of the movie, just natural death would processing them to feed a starving world population really be a bad thing. <laughs> so there you go. We, we have arrived in the, the space of that four decades from this being a uh, nightmare science fiction scenario to being, well, why not? If, if we really are so staggeringly overpopulated, maybe we should start, you know, processing dead people into food. So <laughs> it's amazing um, how just introducing the idea through story form can really start to get people behind an idea like this. And that's, I mean, to me, that's the insidious part about predictive programming, because if you went and started saying, well, this is the type of thing that will lead to the seeds of these types of ideas being planted in society, people would say, well, you're crazy. It's just a movie. Don't take it so seriously. And yet at the same time, it starts to become part of the social conversation. And I think you see that perhaps most startlingly when it comes to this type of dystopian science fiction, where literally in the space of four decades, the even the basic premise of the movie can shift from being type of 
horror scenario to something that people actually start to question as maybe that's feasible. Why not? What's so bad about it after all? As if, you know, cannibalism isn't something that's absolutely abhorrent and has been abhorrent to every human society, pretty much in the existence of human civilization. So, uh, so I mean, what's your take on, on the way that this idea has, has sort of woven itself into the fabric of our society? I mean, do you think, reading back to the original novel, do you think it was kind of a, a, a radical idea when he was writing about this? And, and do you have that feeling that it was kind of something new that was being considered? Or, or do you think this is just something that's kind of developed uh, kind of more naturally than that out of just observation of the world? I think it. Uh, I think it seems as though the author was probably just looking at new ways to tell stories. That that's my impression. Because you look at at his other work, he's no you know sort of you know New World Order writer. He's got other things that are like you know build the space robot and goofy sci fi kind of stuff. And I think he was probably just researching things that were going on, maybe looking ahead. And of course, if all these things are kind of filtering around the, you know, the university circuit in the 60s. So I think, I think Harry Harrison was probably just looking for, for new ways to tell interesting stories. I think where the interesting thing happens, and we'll see if we can chart this arc, is in the move from the book to the film, how it becomes so sort of radicalized and how it becomes so much more New World Order-ish predictive programming. Some of the last things I just wanted to say about Paul Ehrlich, and it said, you know, he was, you know, making making the campus circuit, and he, of course, founded the first Earth Day, it said, in 1970, and I remember some of the work I did on Media Monarchy. So uh, one of the main guys there, too, was a guy named Ira Einhorn, who would later be known as the unicorn killer for, for brutally murdering a girlfriend of his. So you have this weird, again, that weird serial killer kind of connection, just like you can see Charles Manson in the music scene and that weird connection. But the population bomb, James, I, again, just in kind of looking at the names and the dates and the W5s, the publisher of the population bomb, which would published two years after Make Room, Make Room in 1968 was the Sierra Club. So you have the environmental group. However, interestingly enough, sidebar note, the Sierra Club does not give the thumbs up to fluoridating the Portland water. That is a somewhat unrelated side note, a little contemporaneous note. So James, the interesting thing for me is when we jump to the film and the screenwriter, there's one credited screenwriter for Soylent Green, and it's a guy named Stanley R. Greenberg. And you look at some of the other things he wrote, he's written kind of World War II, you know, kind of adventure thrillers. One about a United States spy ship's surrender to North Korea in 1968. And also The Missiles of October, which I think was a, a TV dramatization of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He did one on the Watergate scandal. He did one on FDR. So he, the screenwriter did these kind of political things. And the director of the film of Soylent Green is Richard Fleischer, who among a ton of kind of amazing – maybe not amazing. That's putting it too far. <laughs> a long list of action films among the biggest being things like Tora, 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 Fantastic Voyage and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the, you know, the original 1954 Disney film. So it definitely kind of ups the ante when it moves to the screen. But James, I don't know where we could find within all of that how they came to the idea of, of taking it that much further. Because in the book, James, Saul, 
and yes, you know, spo- spoilers abound. We, you have to kind of go into this assuming, yes, you've watched the film or read the book, and that's why you now want to take it a little bit further. Saul, our, our older character, and again, our, our hero, our detective, the cop, played by Charlton Heston in the film, He's got a much older friend who's played by, as you noted, Edward G. Robinson in his final film performance. He's the older guy who's old enough to kind of remember when we still had some of the real meat and some of the good food and when you could, you know, ride in a car and do the things that you used to be able to do in in the normal world. He dies in the book from injuries received going out to a protest. In the book, the main people that protest are the elders, the old people basically rioting for their, their pensions, essentially. And I think in the film, it's mostly people just rioting in kind of food riots. But in the book, it's got a much more kind of, pol- kind of political tone. They're, they're rioting for you know, kind of benefits and things. Saul dies through injuries received at this riot towards the end of the book, whereas in the film, he decides he wants to kill himself, right, James? Yeah, so in the book, there's no suicide machines. Where did that amazing jump go where they add in Soylent Green is made of people? You've got the suicide machines. You've got the evil corporations knowing that they're killing people and making food out of them. All of those things adding in, making it, making it, you know, a, a big playing action movie. Is it just that they needed a gimmick, like like we see in the, in the trailer for the film? What is the secret of Soylent Green? It, it, yeah, it, that provides a convenient excuse, doesn't it? But it, it is an imaginative leap of you know orders of magnitude beyond what the book suggested, and and it does, I suppose, flow from the logic of the society that they're living in, doesn't it? Or or does it just seem to be that way because it's been presented to us? I'm not sure which of those it is. And it's not that far of you know the book is 66, the film is 73. You know that's that's not a huge amount of of years. I also forgot, James, that Joseph Cotton is in the film, too, who's one of my favorites. You know, you got Edward G. Robinson and Joseph Cotton, guys who, you know, did films with Orson Welles, doing in what now we kind of look back in some way and in a laughing way. Soylent Green is kind of a, a, a silly film. You know, I'm James, I'm surprised they're not remaking it. And I bet if we dug... You know, I I actually did read something about a possible remake, but I think it was supposedly slated for 2012, and obviously that didn't come true. So, (laughs) So, yeah, but I'm I'm sure it's in there somewhere, or will be very soon. I'm sure there will be someone trying to put it in production. But it's interesting that you mentioned that it's only seven years, 66 to 73, and you're getting these huge changes in the perception of this future society and what would be involved in it. I think, in fact... It is much, much more sort of fundamental than than just the the seven year difference. I think what you're looking at is is really two different worldviews, and I did want to explore this a little bit because I mean I I, I think you can see in the post war period coming out of the 50s and into the 60s, you see uh, the the absolute pinnacle of American idealism, I think, and the idea that, you know, there there is this uh, sort of unstoppable force behind America's rise in the world, a superpower position, and uh, and basically America can do anything that it wants. And I think um, there there is that kind of, and I suppose at the time it would have seemed almost justified um, idealism in the, in the entire American idea at that time, 
because of on, on the back, obviously, of the incredible, uh, uh, almost uh, world unprecedented um, economic growth that had been taking place as America rose to its position as world juggernaut. And I think you see that obviously coming into the 60s with the spirit of idealism and uh, and Kennedy being elected and this idea that a young, vibrant America will continue to lead the world kind of thing and we'll put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and by the end of the decade they at least said they did and all of that type of thing. But of course, going into the 70s, suddenly you've got this era of, of basically stagnation of the uh, American economy. You start to get the, the inflation that, that started to eat into uh, the American idea of, uh, you know, anything can happen, the, the gas shortages and everything that was taking place because of the oil uh, problems in the 70s. Um, you start to really get this sort of meltdown of that idea. And of course, uh, at the tail end of the uh, the Vietnam War there and the, the sort of utter disaster that that turned out to be, the complete fiasco. So I think there really is quite a huge ideological and economic difference between the 66 and 73 that I think may have played into this to a certain extent. And I think what we're seeing in the 70s is, as opposed to the 60s, which really did have that kind of sense of awe and wonder. And if you look at the 60s science fiction, like uh, 2001, I mean, that's that's a completely different view on the future of humanity than something like this in the 70s or some of the other 1970s kind of dystopian science fiction that you start to get. And I wonder to what extent the, the kind of econ underlying economic and political uh, realities play into that worldview and made it somewhat more uh, susceptible for the 1970s audience to look at that and see that type of dystopian future. I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the the post World War II because that's actually a note I, I I had made myself in looking at again he doesn't it's not called a bibliography at the end it's just called suggestions for further reading and you would assume it would just be a lot of just and and maybe a lot of them are stodgy research bits but they're all post World War II James they're all post-1945, at that point where, I mean, that was, was that really when the point where everything kind of swiveled and aimed it back at us? That was when the OSS turned into the CIA. That's when we had all these sort of national security apparatus, all those things kind of come into place. And you had a whole mass of population that needed to be propagandized in the sweet 50s and the suburbs, and you had all of that. And so that's why I found interesting that all the suggestions for further reading are all post-World War II. So all the points where all of what we now see as the coming New World Order overlay all started to kind of come into play. So I, f I do find that interesting. When you then jump all the way to the 70s, I find – yeah, I find that whole era kind of an, a, a more interesting time for film in general because post-Vietnam and because post-Watergate. I mean when you think about the films of the 70s, it's called you know a golden age of film because we had so much more darker, gritty kind of films as I guess – on the surface you can just look at it as well because the 60s – petered out and this is the ugly mess that you know we're kind of left with and those are the stories that we're trying to tell but yeah james ultimately i just feel like we can kind of i can kind of look at the the names and see some of the folks involved but yeah it without knowing you know where stanley r greenberg you know started to pull a lot of the more fantastical 
and more new world order ish ideas, you know, where those came from, I, you know, I don't have those answers. Well, it, it is absolutely fascinating to to look at this film, I think, from the 2013 perspective and knowing what we know about really people like Ehrlich and others who have been really trying to inculcate this idea for decades to, to look at this, I think, kind of blatant propagandization for that, that idea that we're going to be so crowded. And it's interesting also, the 1966 novel sets the, uh, the future in 1999. The uh, 1973 film sets it in 2022, so in the space of seven years, the, the, they advanced it another 20-plus years. And maybe that speaks something to this type of Orwellian, not, not Orwellian, but dystopian science fiction that always uh, uh, sees this in, in horrible collapse, sometime vaguely about a generation out. It's always 20 to 30 years out, something like that. And, uh, of course, as we st- stand here now, you know, 40... 40 years on and just, uh, I suppose, what, nine years from the projected time of the movie, we're not really close to the, uh, to that level of, uh, of impending doom. And it's, it, I mean, that to me all echoes the, the entire, you know, Thomas Malthus and Paul Ehrlich and all the so-called scientists who have worked on this problem for the last couple of centuries. They always predict that it's, you know, it, within a generation, we're going to be facing starvation and it's going to completely transform the world. And that never seems to arrive, but it, of course, that never really derails the scientific agenda. So, so it is interesting to me that 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 difference between the book and the movie as well. But before we we start to wrap things up, I wanted to get your take because you say it's been a, a while since you watched the movie. Um, from this perspective now, where you it's been a little while, what what scene or what uh, what part of the movie sticks out in your memory? What do you actually remember most about this movie? I remember mostly because it's so sort of fantastically done is the Edward G. Robinson suicide scene. And that's something that people have seen parodied in, among probably other places, The Simpsons, (laughs) where I think Grandpa Simpson's trying to, you know, have assisted suicide. And it's basically an exact replication of this scene with Edward G. (laughs) Robinson put into the room. What kind of music do you want? What kind of visuals do you want to see? It reminded, in a way, kind of of Clockwork Orange, which aren't they, I think, the same exact year, maybe. Soylent Green and Clockwork Orange are both 1973, I believe. That sticks out to me most. And what I think I used to always reference on on Media Monarchy was what at I guess the the peak of of doing the live weekly Media Monarchy internet show around sort of 2008 where even though, you know, we we were going to transition out of the Bush years, the sort of homeland security Stasi state had become pretty well entrenched and I just saw the Charlton Heston character and and I think that's worth pointing out too the character in the book is not nearly the the jerk that I I remember Charlton Heston in the film kind of being <laughs> in the book I mean his name is Andy Rush and then in the film his name is Richard Thorne that even I think to me is is a, a, a telling change I remember him throwing his weight around and basically being able to investigate people's apartments and going, oh, you've got some real honey here. <laughs> Just be taking that for myself and you're not going to say anything because I'm with the, the, the Stasi. It, but again, in the book, it's much more of just like, hey, I'm a cop. I'm trying to do a job and trying to do a good job and be real with people in a bad situation. Yeah, I got to admit it was I mean it's interesting kind of how gritty that uh, that Soylent Green world 
is made and uh, how just blatantly openly um, the, the cop will go around, you know, sleeping with the, uh, the, the so-called furniture of the apartments and all that. It's, I mean, it is a, it's a very bleak and very, very, I think, stark assessment of, of future society. But, uh, but I, I concur with you completely. It's been a, a few weeks now since I watched this. And I, I have to admit, I watched this movie for the first time just a few weeks ago in preparation for this, because we've talked about, we've mentioned this so many times that I thought it would finally be fitting to actually you know get it on the record but um but i i agree completely the uh the, the suicide scene with edward g robinson is absolutely i think the uh, the most the sort of standout scene of the movie and i think even today i mean it's it's a very powerful scene and it's very powerfully done so i think even today it's kind of stands up the test of time as as a movie where you i mean they i think they beautifully contrasted that that scenery and the, the music and everything with the, the kind of gritty outdoors of of the world outside and uh, I, I still think that's a very powerful scene. So um, I, I, I completely understand why that's the one that sticks out for you. Absolutely. And uh, just a couple of other notes that I want to kind of put on the record that will, again, hopefully maybe get folks into going and, and digging in and doing, you know, digging around in this on their own. Um, I guess one of the things I read, Edward G. Robinson, as we said, it was his last film. He was dying of cancer and hadn't told anyone. He told Charlton Heston, I'm dying of cancer and will be dead soon. Right before they said, roll film on the scene of Saul telling him he's dying. I, that is one thing Talk I read. Method acting. Exactly. Hmm. So that, that's kind of startling just on the, the film end of it. One of the things in the book, I know they mention... They talk about, da, 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 oh, yeah, the, the prison gangs out there to break up the big freeways to reclaim the farmland. So they have prison gangs basically because cars aren't running anymore because of fossil fuel you know, depletion. So we're breaking it. This is that whole interesting area of you know, progressive movements and environmental movements or eugenics and all of those things. You know – it is the factory farming of meat that made it so awful. Eating soy and lentils in and of themselves is not that bad. They talk about energy bars as like plankton bars. You know, seaweed and chlorella and spirulina, those things are actually really good for you. So it is that weird – that's always in the eugenics mix, the the battle of, of ideals and, and positions, because I find that's always something you'll hear from, you know, I think some of my favorite comedians, George Carlin and Bill Hicks and Doug Stanhope and guys like that, they'll always have bits about there's too many people and here's this TV show idea where I want to kill off tons of people because there's too many morons in the world. That is that weird, and I don't know if maybe, I forget where Joe Rogan may kind of fall in that too. But it's almost like it's the halfway point to idiocracy, James. I guess both the the book and the film. Because all these problems are ultimately caused by, again, you know, the mafia and the gangsters that run things. As if, you know, one of the cops say, you know, the captain says to all the cops before they're going out on on all their beats that, you know, we're going to have we're going to have more riots because the water the water shortage is kicking in so we're going to have to tell people they're not going to have the water they think they're going to have and also there's less food because you know that trouble we had with the soybeans because of the insecticide 
So they mention, yeah, you know, that brilliant insecticide that we had didn't actually work after all. So we're having more and more of a dust bowl. It reminded me of, you know, oh, putting Gatorade on the plants isn't a good idea. It did remind me of idiocracy that in this milieu, you have people being blamed for the problems caused by the so-called elite Exactly right. And in fact, that's that's the thing that always rankles me about all of those comics that you mentioned and, and a lot of the others that, uh, you know, are trying to be edgy, I think, and are always blaming everything on, oh, it's just, you know, it's too many people. We need to get rid of all these silly, useless eaters. And, and in my mind, that's always like, well, I just equate that with people like Henry Kissinger and others who, who are saying that exact same thing, but in a slightly different context. And it's not really a joke. So I that's the thing that always rankles me. I'd love to see a comedian someday who makes a bit about how it's not uh, how you know the, the problems in the world are being caused by the very few rather than just stupid humans you know which uh, plays directly into this ideology but it shows just how far this this idea has wormed its way down into the human subconscious and and uh, this is a, a problem that i think is so much about perception it is so much about the way we see the world and the idea that we are at this point, a, a vastly overcrowded world and there's just no more room for any more people is the type of thing that can only be really, I think, adhered to by people who live in a city environment. I mean, people who are spend their time outdoors or spend their time out of the cities in rural areas or live in rural areas, I think, have a much different appreciation of the, just how much space the world really has. It's not a question of space. It's a question of space management. And we have been herded into cities. And uh, I think it was just a a few years ago, the world population crossed over, so now the majority of the world population live in city environments. Obviously, that's going to create perceptions of crowding that can wow. then be played upon by people like Ehrlich and others, and then played up in big Hollywood productions like Soylent Green. So, so I think it is so much about perception, which is why movies like this are so important to shaping that perception. And uh, and as I say, I think you know, 50 years ago, the idea that we were just facing this overpopulation crisis would not have been nearly as common as it is now. And as I say, I think you know, if you go out on the street and talk to 99 or 100 people about it, 99 of them will probably just start to talk to you about overpopulation. If you if you ask them, do you think the world is overpopulated. I'm sure that's the majority opinion. And uh, and I wonder, you know, again, how that type of idea is inculcated in people. And I think it's through works like this and many, many others, obviously, that have set that idea in people's minds. And it's interesting to watch, you know, how, how it oh. plays out. And as, a, as we say, it's 40 years this week um, uh, from the, uh, the, the launch of this movie and only nine years to go until the dreaded 2022. And so far, you know, I haven't seen families sleeping on stairways and all of the other things in the movie. So, so again, people should reflect on what these, these ideas are being implanted and how f far away from reality they really are. But, uh, but before we leave it today, um, uh, we played the trailer at the beginning of this conversation, but you also sent a clip over of the music from, uh, from the film, which uh, is, again, it's, that's another very interesting and very effective uh, opening to the film. Yes. Uh, do you have any, any notes about the music itself, who it was scored by? or where this came from? I, I couldn't find that there's ever been like a soundtrack released, but but hopefully, but again, maybe with some of the show notes and things we'll include, I did, maybe there's a, a single kind of author. You know, I'm not sure. James, I think the last thing I would say is, that, again, not only is it interesting that we're doing this 40 years after the, the film came out, and hopefully I think 
in asking the question, you know, how did it make this jump from being, you know, a crime thriller set in a dystopic future to becoming a main piece of eugenics pushing predictive programming for future generations, I hope we've kind of demonstrated, well, it looks like folks like Paul Ehrlich and other eugenics connected people helped bridge that gap. And the character of Saul in the film becomes such an annoying mouthpiece. You think you're listening to Paul Ehrlich at, at some parts. And, and again, Edward G. Robinson isn't that way in the film. So again, I hope folks will kind of explore all the interesting differences. But the last thing I would say is most interesting, James, to, to push all of this out of the way in a way to fight against it. And, and again, on the work you've done on demographic winter, I think it's also important to note that you are about to have a child, you and your wife. So I like that yeah. as, as the counterpoint to this. Absolutely. No, that's exactly right. And of course, that's the type of thing that that's really uh, more on the forefront of your mind when you're about to have a child, which is, uh, you know, this this absolute venom and hatred of uh, people for the people that are populating this planet. Well, those that that vague nebulous people are actual human beings. And uh, and yes, absolutely. As I said, uh, I have said several times now, I think that uh, as opposed to the the crisis that we're facing, I think we have a demographic winter scenario playing playing out that will see a very, very, very different outlook on the population problem by the end of this century than the one we have going into it. So um, I I think that uh, having children and uh, having and loving and fostering those children as healthy human beings is the best that we can possibly do and is really, I think, humanity's purpose on this planet. So uh, I'm going to contribute towards that. So thank you for bringing that up. And yes, on that note, for people who are wondering, there was no podcast episode this past weekend because I was uh, busy with my wife preparing for that baby, which will be long in a few weeks. So so, um, so absolutely, that, that that's what I'm concerned about these days and, uh, and more so than the overpopulation crisis. But on that note, I think we're going to leave it there. Why don't we just play it out with the music again that you sent over from the, uh, the, the, uh, the movie itself. And as always, the links to all of this will be in the show notes and uh, we'll of course put in a link to James although I'm sure you all know him and his websites by now but on that final note um, also next month we are going to be talking about J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye so once again I'll put the link to that in the show notes so that you can get prepared for next month's uh, conversation Uh, James Evan Pilato always a pleasure thank you so much for sharing your insights on the movie and the book please man my pleasure I do this anytime thank you 